You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. I think you will find this week's Global IQ Minute especially interesting as we dive into a discussion of U.S. relations with its neighbors, Canada and Mexico. As you will soon hear, both countries' relations with the United States have entered a new phase, some might say a troublesome one, as each country must react to the changing dynamic created by the elections of Donald Trump and Manuel Lopez Obrador, who has been in office less than three months. Will the USMCA be implemented, or will the upcoming federal election in Canada this coming October and our own presidential in 2020 make approval doubtful? What about Trump's wall? And what can or should Mexico do about the transmigration of the thousands of people seeking to reach the United States? Earlier today, I talked with Laura Dawson. She's the director of the Wilson Center's Canada Institute, a recognized expert on U.S.-Canada political and economic relations. She's the founder of the economic consulting firm Dawson Strategic, and she was previously senior advisor on economic affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa. Ambassador Arturo Saracan, he was Mexico's ambassador to the United States from 2007 to 2013 and was involved in the early NAFTA negotiations in 1993. He currently is based in Washington, D.C. and is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Again, thank you so much for joining us on Global IQ Minute. It's a great pleasure. So relations between Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and President Trump, which appeared at one time to begin on such a positive note, have certainly deteriorated over the last several months, to the point where Larry Kudlow, Trump's top economic advisor, said that Trudeau stabbed us in the back, and Trudeau threatened retaliatory measures against the United States. Where are the relations now between those two gentlemen? Mm -hmm. The relations are a lot of theater, a lot of posturing. Donald Trump has also said, you know, every time I talk, I say something bad about, he calls him Justin, every time I say something bad about Justin, his domestic poll numbers at home go go right through the roof. So I'm doing him a favor. It's like when he says something about somebody's book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I think there's a certain amount of acknowledgement on both sides that there's a lot of theater in the relationship. I think Canada, Justin Trudeau has done a good job in not intentionally provoking President Trump you will not hear the prime minister make a comment about the president himself. This being said, the Canada is taking advantage of the opportunity to distinguish itself from the U.S. in terms of promotion of human rights, promotion of gender, promotion of fairness, equality, membership in international institutions. So they are polishing their halo a little bit. I'm not too concerned about the relationship between the the prime minister and the president because there are a lot of other areas of connective tissue. Well, let me ask you this, because I guess it was about a week ago, we had a seminar with Haynes & Boone, the law firm, and a lawyer who had advised some of the Canadians on the negotiations said that it wasn't just what the United States asked for in the NAFTA negotiations, it's how they asked for it, and that what they came to the table with was so outrageous at first, it really showed a lack of understanding about what drove the Canadian economy and really the underpinning of the close relationship. And not just a lack of understanding of what underpinned the Canadian economy, but the nature of the integrated North American economy and the importance of integrated efficient supply chains. Many of the things that the U.S. initially brought to the table seemed like they were designed to uh, actually blow the deal up. You're familiar with the poison pills, the sunset clause, the suicide clause, etc. 
a lot of things that we're going to bring instability not just to Canada and Mexico, but to the U.S. as well. The U.S. in the final analysis, by the time they got to the end game, actually walked a lot of those issues back. It's not a bad deal. It's not a great deal, but not a bad deal. And most people can live with it. And again, I think the Canadian negotiators certainly recognized that there was a lot of political theater going on that really were outside the nuts and bolts of the negotiations. So what do you think the chance is now of the USMCA? What a mouthful being ratified and implemented? I think eventually it will be ratified and implemented, but I think we're talking about lithic time. June is kind of the, the drop-dead date for a lot of different reasons, and I don't see any possibility that it's going to make it through the U.S. domestic processes by June. There's still too many, too much uh, uh, positioning at a, at a political level. I don't see that happening. What I would hope would happen in the meantime is a return to a little bit of stability. That would be the removal of those Section 301 national security tariffs that are really destabilizing the relationship. Also to maybe rein in the president's actions on pulling the plug on NAFTA. You know, every day there has been this, I'm going to ditch the agreement. I'm going to launch the exit. So I think the best we can hope for right now is stability through those 301s and through maintaining the NAFTA 1.0. And someday in the future, but not this day, we will get the USMCA ratified. Well, as I mentioned in my introduction, we are very fortunate to have with us today also Ambassador Arturo Sarakan. Arturo, you now have a new president in your country as well. Somewhat challenging time. How are things going in the first, what is it now, two and a half months? Well, it's certainly... Uh an important sea change in terms of Mexican politics and the future of this administration. This is probably the most important presidential transition the country has seen in many decades. Yes, Vicente Fox defeated the PRI in 2000 after 71-year rule, continuous rule, and opened up a lot of expectations regarding Mexico's de full democratization. But if you see what happened in the polls in July, if you see the popular mandate that Andres Manuel López Obrador achieved on election day, if you see the two majorities that he has in the Senate and the House, this is probably the most powerful president since the old powerful PRI of the 1960s and 1970s. And so there are questions being thrown about as to what this means, what this entails for checks and balances that have been slowly created in Mexico over the past two decades, whether it's via NGOs and civil society, which in my book is one of the most promising changes that has occurred in Mexican politics and Mexican society, the growth and the maturity of a number of NGOs, whether it's on transparency issues or corruption or public security or the environment or on gender rights. The blooming of Mexican civil society is a very important story. Paradoxically, one of the reasons why I think López Obrador today is president. So there are questions as to how are these checks and balances going to play out? What's the role of Congress where Morena, the president's party, has a majority in both chambers in the Senate and lower house? Particularly because the opposition, the PAN and the PRI, have been obliterated as a result of July elections of, of last year. So there are a lot of question marks. It's still administration in the early phases, it's still getting its sea legs, so I think there are still a lot of question marks out there. But a lot of us are waiting to see exactly what the administration is going to start doing in terms of implementation of the policy. The administration has already taken some very strong steps, canceled the contract on the new airport, yep. and also, just in the last few days, I guess, really taking some measures to begin to 
renationalize or nationalize the energy industry? No, they haven't gone as far as that. I think they, despite some of the measures that they've announced they're going to take, like, for example, reviewing contracts with the utility company CFE, pipelines and others, which the president argues are idle, they are pivoting back and forth between promising to review contracts to ensure that there's no corruption, while at the same time saying that they're not going to revert the constitutional reform that allowed for the opening of the energy sector in Mexico. So there's a bit of a back and forth on this, depending on the morning press conference, his daily press conference, depending on what the issue is, that there's a bit of back and forth. There's also a very important challenge, which is that Morena is a very, very, very big tent of very strange bedfellows. You've got everything from the former remaining Communist Party in Mexico to the extreme right conservative evangelical party and everything in between mm -hmm. as the coalition that supported López Obrador and that therefore is represented in Congress. So it's not only about trying to ascertain what the executive is going to be doing, it's also how the relationship and the equilibrium between the president and his backbenchers in Congress is going to shape policymaking. And El Chapo was now convicted. Yep. We expect him to spend his life in prison. Hopefully. I assume in the United States. Hopefully. Without a tunnel being built. What has Obrador done to address corruption? This is the issue which I think propelled him over the finish line. Corruption and a general sense of malaise in Mexico regarding politicians, traditional political parties, and politics as usual, and the perception that corruption and impunity were rampant. There are some countries where public opinion feels that corruption happens beneath the table. There are some countries where citizens think that corruption happens over the table. In Mexico, in this election cycle, citizens felt that corruption included the table. This is going to be a very important benchmark, I think, with which many Mexicans, even hardcore voters and supporters of López Obrador, are going to measure his administration. So far, there hasn't been any movement on this front because the president said during the transition and has reiterated this since he assumed office that he wants to look forward, not backwards, that he does not want to deal with previous corruption because this would strain the executive, it would strain political alliances, that he wants to look forward. So despite the narrative of confronting and rooting out corruption being at the top of almost every day of presidential activities, if you scratch beneath the surface, there's absolutely nothing that has happened to clean house. Despite what we sometimes hear in our press, or not from the press so much, but from President Trump, there's been a net reduction in migration from Mexico to the United States, yep. but there certainly has been an increase in transmigration through Mexico from Central America to the United States. What is Mexico's responsibility concerning that, and what is the country doing? I always argued during my six-year tenure as ambassador to the United States that the central paradigm of U.S.-Mexican relations is shared responsibility. There isn't a single issue of the U.S.-Mexico bilateral agenda that can be addressed successfully by either one or the other partner. We have to work together, whether it's scarce water resources on the Rio Grande, which are shared on both sides of the Texas-Mexico border, whether it's issues of energy in the Gulf of Mexico, 
uh, deposits that overlap our territorial waters, whether it's on issues of how we share intelligence to prevent terrorists from using our border to undermine the security of the United States, certainly in the fight against organized crime, certainly in our attempts to prevent transmigration and undocumented crossings over the Mexico-US border. So Mexico certainly has a role to play. Mm -hmm. Mexico um, needs to up its game in terms of its own ability to ensure the security of its southern border with Guatemala and Belize, more so because since 9-11, Canada, Mexico, and the United States have been building a paradigm of common domain awareness. That is, if the three countries in North America can ensure that no one's flying into, for example, any one of our airports in Canada, Mexico, and the United States, who is an, either on a terrorist watch list or who has been denied a visa by either one of the three countries and is shopping for a visa to be able to come into the other two countries, th this has strengthened our ability to confront the threat of terrorism and to ensure border security. So absolutely, Mexico has a responsibility to do this. The problem at the same time is that because of the narrative of this U.S. administration, there are many in Mexico who feel that by doing that, we are, quote-unquote, doing the dirty work of the United States. And there are a lot of political and public perceptions antibodies to doing that in Mexico today. And in many ways, that's where the López Obrador administration is sort of caught between a rock and a hard place, mm -hmm. seeking to prevent a conflict with the United States on this front, but at the same time, understanding that it needs to ensure its ability to monitor and control its borders with Belize and Guatemala. Tough challenge. Before we go back to Laura, I do want to ask you the same question. What do you think is the likelihood of the USMCA being implemented? I concur with Laura. I think that eventually we will have a ratified USMCA in the US Congress, in the Canadian Parliament, and in the Mexican Congress. But it's going to be a very bumpy road. It's going to be bumpy because, for starters, the issue of trade is not an easy one to address in a Congress as polarized and as divided as this one. Second, because one of the effects of the government shutdown in the United States is that it has compacted calendars. And an ITC, the International Trade Commission report, that would have had to be submitted to Congress a month ago will be probably submitted if we don't have another shutdown this Friday. Which appears unlikely today. It's varying by the hour depending on who you read and who, and who you're listening to. But so far, it seems that we will not be heading into another shutdown come Friday. But any event, it gets but more complicated for the United States. Because it is shortening the congressional calendar for what will be a very complex debate. And the closer we get to the United States entering into pre-campaign mode and primary mode for the 2020 presidential elections, this issue is going to be kryptonite for Republicans and Democrats. The water gets very muddy. So, Laura, we're talking about elections. Canada has election coming up, too. Give us your, it's awfully early, but mm -hmm. give us your prognostication of what's going to happen uh, in Canada. Where's the crystal ball? So, to, to pick up on what Arturo was saying about election schedules, for Canada to ratify the USMCA, Parliament rises in June, as we say. So, if there isn't a full clearance of all of the legislation by June, then Canada's ratification process is out of the game until after the next Canadian elections. Now, Justin Trudeau is still 
pretty bulletproof. He is still the best, he still has the best chance of being the Prime Minister, but that's really because the uh, the Conservative Party hasn't put up a candidate that is at the level of a Trudeau. At the same time, the Trudeau government seems to be shooting itself in the foot each and every day. I think it's one of the, the problems of going in on sort of a, a virtue campaign to try to present yourself as so virtuous on issues of rights, on issues of anti-corruption, on issues of uh, gender equity, et cetera, et cetera, uh, on clean air and anti-emissions. The Trudeau government went in on this very, very clean green agenda and then recently bought itself a pipeline. It took over the ownership of a Canadian pipeline. Similarly, there's a very large scandal in Canada right now, if you're bored to check the Globe and Mail newspaper, um, over a major Canadian company, SNC-Lavalin, which has done some things abroad that it claims it has atoned for. Canada's Attorney General claimed they didn't atone enough. The Prime Minister's office said they did, and so Canada's Attorney General just, just resigned. There are all of these things where the luster is falling off the Trudeau armor. He is probably still going to be successful in the next election, but he's not going to be the golden child that he was two years ago. Well, there certainly is a lot for us to watch in both countries, and I want to thank you, Ambassador Arturo Sarakan and Laura Dawson. Thanks so much for being guests on Global IQ Minute. Thank Our you. Pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this week's Global IQ Minute, and please share it with your friends. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.